Hi, I'm Jack Kropp, and this is Sharing Recovery Radio. I'd like to welcome you all today. The purpose of this show is to help people understand that there is recovery possible. People do recover. People want to recover. People can call us and talk to us. If you want to call in today to this show, ask questions, it's 883-0098. Our guest today is Chris Drybosch. Chris is the CEO of Blueprints for Addiction Recovery. And we're going to talk about what what is recovery, because last week we had on Shana from Silver Pines Treatment Center, and we talked about what residential treatment is. What does it mean to go to a 28-day residential treatment program? But what happens when you leave there? And that's what we're going to talk about today after we get to know Chris a little bit. We're going to talk about what goes on next? What is the continuum of care? Where do you go? You know, you, can you go to a 28-day treatment program and be cured? I've heard Chris say this. What do you think? You go to detox five days and all of a sudden you're better? That's not the way it works. So, Chris, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, it was nice of you to drive up here today and join us. And uh, I'll give a shout-out to Paul Fletcher. I know you were with him yesterday, and he was on this show. and. He's a great guy and working real hard in this program to help people. So, Chris, were you are you in recovery yourself? Yes, yes, I am. And I have to make note that you did butcher my last name despite talking about it prior. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I had it right, Chris. It's okay. Oh well, I I'm not offended. If that's just... the worst thing I do today, we're in good shape, right? Just wanted to make note. So uh, all make right. Make note that you butchered it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, tell us where did where did addiction start for you? It started in, in lovely Allentown, Pennsylvania. Lovely Allentown, Pennsylvania. I was about 13 years old. Uh, I went to a wedding and I, I had my first drink. So at that wedding, there was an open bar and, and being 13, being much larger than everybody else and the ability to grow facial hair fairly rapidly, nobody asked any questions when I went to the open bar and I took a drink. And previously in my 13 years of existence, I was fairly uncomfortable socially and fairly uncomfortable pretty much all the time. And when I consumed that first drink, one of the greatest things ever happened for me, like my mind stopped racing and I got real comfortable. And, uh, you know, it got more comfortable with the second drink and the third drink and the fourth drink and the fifth drink and the sixth drink and the seventh drink and the eighth drink and the ninth drink. And it, it never stopped feeling comfortable that night. So that's where it started. You know, and, and so many people have said that exact same thing, that they didn't identify that they were uncomfortable. I started to drink when I was eight years old. Yeah. I didn't know I was uncomfortable. I only knew that when I started to sneak those drinks, when people weren't looking around my house and I, and I would sneak that drink, something would change. I didn't know until much later in life, until I got to recovery, that I was trying to deal with feelings. So you're 13 years old, you start drinking, but you weren't, you weren't instantly an addict, were you? I don't believe so. I mean, I, I could theoretically say maybe because it made me feel a whole lot better. Really, on that base level, it made me feel good. And that's all I was ever looking for. Was to change your feelings? Uh, to, to feel good, period. You know, and, and without alcohol, my life was kind of a sad, boring, awkward, giant 13-year-old. And, and with alcohol, my life was very comfortable and happy and joyous and, and free, if you will. Right. When I added alcohol to my life, and, and not when I was eight years old, but when we got start to get around the high school age and stuff, alcohol in my life made me the center of attention. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I was the celebrity. I mean, he's the one who can get the booze. He's the one who has the money to get the booze. You know, that, that made me 
something I wasn't. Or maybe it, it may be what I was. I was an alcoholic from day one in my mind. So, but at, so at 13 years old, you start drinking, Chris. But did you graduate from high school? Did, did life go on? How did how did everything happen? Yeah, I mean, I graduated from Emmaus High School in the year 2004. So if there's anybody from Emmaus High School, probably not. But if there is, you know, shout out to the, the Hornets. And uh, yeah, I graduated high school. I, I drank literally constantly through high school. I don't remember a whole heck of a lot of it. Um, got into a moderate amount of trouble. But I got introduced to tons of other substances throughout high school. And then shortly after I left uh, high school, I got introduced to the final, the final substance, is heroin. And uh, that took me to some very interesting places. And, and, and I've shared many times that I came to recovery in 1998. And in 1998, there was no opiate crisis. There was, certainly there was heroin. Heroin was around. Certainly everybody in the 80s was doing cocaine. and But that was recreational, so to speak. But there was no opiate crisis. So I avoided that that opiate addiction by the grace of God because I I certainly would be dead if I ever got involved in opiates on the level I drank alcohol I couldn't I just could not survive and so what you're saying is Chris that at, at an early age 18 years old or so you somewhere found heroin yeah oh yeah absolutely and and, and because of it was you went from alcohol to whatever else you did in high school, and one day somebody suggested heroin was a good idea? I don't know that anybody ever suggested it was a good idea. It was just there, and anything that could make me feel good sounded like a good idea to me. I was advised against it. Obviously, all logic in my head told me that it was a terrible idea because I'd seen heroin take people to state prison, seen it take people to, to death, seen it take people all kinds of terrible places. So obviously it was a bad idea, but I still did it anyway. Yeah, a, a guy said to me in a bar one night uh, that I had known since we were young kids. He, he said, uh, Jack, you seem like you're having a bad day. And, you know, in my mind, I was having a bad day. I owned a pretty large landscaping company. Things weren't going right financially. Things weren't right at home. And, and he could tell that. And he said to me, why don't you try some heroin? And I looked at him like he had two heads. Like, what? And that was God right then. I don't know that. I didn't know that then. But that was God working in my life. Because if I had said okay to the heroin, life would have turned out certainly different than it did. It was bad enough. I mean, it was, life was bad enough. But I didn't need heroin. You said yes to heroin, Chris. And where did it take you? Heroin took me to rehab first. A nice, lovely detox provided by the county of Lehigh. Uh, shortly after that, I got arrested on some felony burglary charges. And it took me to Lehigh County Prison. And it took me running from parole, and it took me to Buffalo, and it took me to North Carolina, and it took me to jail again and again and again, until finally a judge shipped me to Lancaster, Pennsylvania in 2007, and I haven't left since. So. All right, now, you say Lancaster. Was that another treatment center, or was that jail? Lancaster was a halfway house after I got out of another treatment center that the judge shipped me to. All right, how many times did you go to treatment? I was in treatment four times, all told. That's, you know, because people people don't understand. That I, I have families call me all the time. How many times is my kid going to go through this? How many times is my kid going to go to a treatment center? And my answer is until he, until he gets it, until either you die or you get it. They're the only two options. Once you're an opiate addict, your only two options are either get clean by the grace of God or die. I mean, there is, there's no other way. So you end up in Lancaster at a halfway house. And what happens, Chris? 
So I get linked up with some folks in recovery, some folks in recovery, and they showed me a different way to live. And, and they really took me through this process that allowed me to scrub all the garbage from myself and become a new man. And I latched onto that program with a, with a fervor that I haven't really let go of in the last 11 years. Perfect. And, and, and I am in a program of recovery, and it's based on something called the 12 steps. And, and those 12 steps help us find out what's going on inside. They help us identify that black hole, that, that feeling that you had at 13 or I had at 8 years old. If somebody could have given us the 12 steps at that point and said, we're going to do it this way, as opposed to drugs and alcohol, we would make, maybe we would have had a better shot. But that's not the way it went for me. You know, I went to recovery, and even after going to recovery, Chris, I still behaved like I did when I was drunk. I just didn't have the alcohol. And being a dry drunk is the most horrible thing in this world. Now, I did that for seven or eight years before I finally surrendered. I went to prison. I went through a lot of things. And and I had to do that. I went to prison sober. You know, you're talking about you went to prison, you know, as a result of your addiction while you were using. But I went to prison after I quit drinking because I didn't stop behaving the way I was. And All right, so now you finally surrender. And it's time to take a break. All right, well, let's talk, we'll talk about surrender in a minute. Okay, we're back. And as I said at the start of the show, if you have questions for Chris or I, 570-883-0098. Just before the break, we were talking about surrender because that's what it takes. We have to surrender to get better. And at what point, Chris, did you finally surrender? I'm not really sure that I can pinpoint the moment of surrender, but I think the simplest moment of surrender would have been when I was in treatment in the last rehab, Bowling Green, the place where Paul Fletcher and I were yesterday for the alumni picnic. A counselor said to me, how about going to a halfway house afterward instead of going back to Allentown? And I said, no, absolutely not. You know, the only people who go to halfway houses are loser junkies who live under bridges and you know, I'm not one of those people, so I'm not interested in going to this halfway house. And he told me to go upstairs and pray about it that night, and I was absolutely not interested in praying because I didn't believe in God or any kind of higher power or any of that silly stuff, uh, you know. And he said, just go upstairs and, and throw out into the world. Just give me some inspiration. And I said, all right, I could probably do that, you know. So I went back to my little hotel room that I shared with two other guys. Both of them were on sleep apnea machines because that's the luck I get every time I go inpatient anywhere. And I listened to those uh, little, like, sleep apnea machines were their swan song into the night all night long. And at some point during that evening, I remember saying, just give me some inspiration. And uh, the next morning, I went back over to see that counselor, and he said, how about that halfway house? And I got to be able to say the most spiritual thing I ever said at that point, which was okay. And I don't even know why I said it, because I didn't want to go to a stupid halfway house. But I did. So I guess you could consider that a moment of surrender. Uh, but I still certainly wasn't interested in recovery or recovering or anything of that nature. But it still happened. So. And at those, at those times, I, I, the way I look at it is God was working in your life right then for you. I mean, you weren't able to do that on your own. You talked to a higher power. I happen to call my higher power God. And God suggested for you to take that suggestion. That, you know, there's another side to that coin when my, my daughter is in recovery. And, you know, she went through a treatment program. And they said she needs to go to a, a, an extended care program uh, in Maine. 
And my first reaction as a parent was not my kid. And it took me, you know, an hour or two to realize that she needed to go there and she needed to do that. And, and it worked out real well. I mean, she's over two years clean and sober now and, and, and by the grace of God. So you went to that halfway house in Lancaster and, and where did your life go then, Chris? Well, I got a job working at a diner locally, third shift. A get well job. Yeah, good. a get well job. I worked at a diner that had a bar in it and I worked third shift overnights and I served pancakes and eggs and stuff to a bunch of drunk people every single night. And for the first time in my life, uh, through the 12 steps, I was able to actually show up at that job and not throw up in any trash cans and not be an absolute nightmare of an employee. And I did everything I could to further that guy's business, the guy who gave me the opportunity to have a job. And it was a whole different perception shift uh, from the way I used to be when I was in Allentown. And All right. And how long did you stay there in Lancaster? Uh, still to this very moment. That's where I came to you today from. Oh, okay. Yeah. And at, at some point, though, you realized that it was time to get on with life. I mean, how long did how long did you participate in that program at that halfway house? I was there for about two months. It was a three-month program, but I was a little too loud and uh, obnoxious for them. So they shipped, shipped me right out, and I got a little $400 a month apartment that didn't have any heat and no locks on the doors. And I moved right into that place, and my mom and dad both said I was crazy wanting to live there but you know it was my first place and it was a place that i was able to save some money and build and make amends and go back to allentown and fix all the drama that i caused and uh you know it worked out that the diner actually let me go at one point in favor of somebody who would work a little bit cheaper than me and i got a job back at bowling green the rehab that i came out of and it started this train of circumstances that i could never put together on my best day okay so how long is how long ago was that, Chris? How long have you been recovering? Uh, Two thousand seven. So, right, just, so just under eleven. Eleven years. years. Yep. All right. So you went to work at Bowling Green, and what did you do there? At Bowling Green, I was a highly paid nine dollar an hour tech. <laughs> okay. Highly paid. <laughs> One hour drive each way. <laughs> Terrific. I mean, but but you went and you did the job. Absolutely, I loved it. There were so many people to help. There are a hundred plus people every single day in just the worst dire straits that you could think of, and it was it was perfect i would i would lose six thousand dollars a year again just to go back there <laughs> well, uh, but that that is the key to recovery for me is helping others that that's you know dr bob wrote his prescription and i talk about that all the time you know trust god clean house and help others and the way i understand prescriptions you don't take the part of the prescription you want you have to take the whole prescription and helping others is is a key to that is to, the key to recovery to me so now where I'm headed with this is what you do today. And at some point you said, I can do this myself, or how did it, how did it come about that you went to work for yourself in recovery? That's a good one right there. So in 2010, after about a year and some change at Bowling Green, I actually had five friends at that halfway house that were all about to be homeless at the same time. And I had a little bit of money saved up from my time at the diner and working, working like a dog for them. Uh, and all those guys were going to be homeless, so I got a house in Lancaster, and I essentially founded the pioneer sober living community in Lancaster almost against my will. It just kind of happened. And what happened was all of those guys, almost all of them stayed sober. Some of them are sitting right now at eight, eight years sober right now. And, and that was a new life sober living? That was a new life sober living, yeah. And it, it didn't even start out as a, a thing. It just kind of happened. And 
Uh, more people wanted to move in and more people wanted to move in and we had to go get a second house we had to develop a program we came up with a 64 point guideline sheet to help people start from treatment to sobriety and uh, more and more people want to move in we grew it into a 13 house 140 bed uh, company essentially and is that still operating today chris that is not under my direction anymore i handed it off to a house manager when we opened blueprints so that there were no questions of ethics and housing versus treatment and so on and so forth but it is still in operation today all right so now let, let's talk about treatment you went to a, a treatment program i didn't i walked into recovery off the street but you know my daughter all the people i know everybody goes to a treatment program 28-day treatment program does what chris 28-day treatment program is designed to stabilize people after detox. Right, and, and that's, you go there, detox, and detox means to be removed from whatever substance that is, is upsetting your life, whether it's alcohol, whether it's an opiate, whether it's cocaine, whatever it is, you go, you get a detox program, you stay there hopefully for the 28 days, just to get your head a little bit clear, mm -hmm. but you're not recovered. I would say no. Right. I'd say not. <laughs> right. You, you, that's one of the struggles we have with families is that a family will come to me and say, Johnny needs help. How long is it going to take? Well, it takes forever. It, there, there's no time limit on recovery. But they think if you go to a 28-day program, you're going to come home and, and all of a sudden you're going to be the president of General Motors. And, and that's not the way it works in most cases, and especially not with the opiate epidemic that we're seeing today right yeah absolutely what 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 happens what is explain what continuum of care means so i mean if you think about it and going back to your question a little bit if you think about the media perception and the way the world kind of portrays treatment and drug addiction you think oh i'll go to a 28-day program and that's it I'm done and I'm cured. That's kind of the way it's been portrayed for so long that people who aren't in this world and people who aren't involved in treatment, they may still think that 28 days is some mystical cure that will fix everything. Uh, but in reality, a true continuum of care would be a detox for five to seven days, um, a 28 day residential stay, usually a four to six week partial hospitalization stay, which is five hours of treatment, five days a week or seven days a week, depending on the level needed. Then at least eight to 12 weeks of intensive outpatient, which is three hours a day, three days a week, and then a year or more in some cases of general outpatient, which is an hour group session and maybe an hour of individual sessions weekly. All right, now, for the people listening to this radio show, you just said more than they can ever understand yes. in, in that one or two seconds it took you to say that or sure. one minute. So let's let's slow it down and talk about this in segments now sure so Johnny goes to the 28-day treatment program and a counselor there or an aftercare person at that treatment center says we want you to go somewhere else now is the next place they go a residential place Chris is it is it you stay home with mom and dad what what is the next level down I mean, in, in each case, is it, in each case it can be different, really. But partial hospitalization is meant to be where you're able to start living life a little bit on your own, but you're still involved in some heavy and intense treatment at least five hours a day. So in residential, 
you essentially will get six hours of acute therapy a day. So when you step down to partial, it's just a little bit less intense with one less hour of treatment a day. But in reality, you could live with your family and attend a partial program, or you could live in sober living or other recovery-oriented housing while attending partial hospitalization. Right. In, a, in a partial hospitalization program, you're not living on the campus of the treatment program. Correct. Where, where you go to a 28-day inpatient residential program like Bowling Green mm -hmm. or like Silver Pines, you're living in their facility and, and you're spending 24 hours a day there. Yes. When you go down to a partial hospitalization plan, you're not doing that anymore. You're leaving the, the campus, you're leaving the treatment area and going back to live in another environment, right? So is that is that housing supervised? Are people, is it regulated or do people just leave? In, in some cases, it is supervised. Uh, Blueprints, which is our my current company, uh, we have one of two licensed residential transitional living facilities to coincide with our partial hospitals program. The other one is a grandfathered in White Deer on from 1973 or whenever that might be. So our buddy some, Kurt Bryant. Yes. In some very rare cases, it is it is um, supervised and okay. regulated at the same time. All right. So now now people are going through that plan and what what goes on in a typical day, Chris? I mean, what does it what does if I'm a family member, what do I think my child or my loved one or my husband or wife is going through in a typical day when they're in your program? In a typical day of partial hospitalization, you'll wake up in the morning. Uh, our housing is actually a beautiful eight-unit apartment building that was built in 1840. So you get up, uh, you share your room with either one or two other people. So you'll go to your own kind of personal kitchen. Uh, you know, have a little bit of breakfast, maybe a drink, something like that, get ready for the day. You get taken uh, by van and vehicle over to the counseling center and you begin your day of treatment. So you'll have a group, you'll have a group early in the morning, uh, then you'll have another group right after that, then you'll have a lunch break, and then you'll have another group after that. All right, let's take a break and we'll continue to talk about recovery after that 28-day program. Absolutely. Okay, here we go. We're back. And as I said, if you want to call in and talk to Chris or I, it's 570-883-0098. If you have a question about recovery, if you have a question about recovery centers, if you want to know how to get your kid into treatment, I mean, you can call either Chris or I, either one of us can help you get into a, a treatment program for yourself, for your family member. That's what we're here for. We're here to talk about the fact there is a chance to recover, that there, there's opportunities for anyone who wants recovery it, it's available. You know, I had a call from a woman last night in Philadelphia, and she said, my daughter's up in Kensington. We're going to pull her out right now. She said, we have no money. We have no insurance. What do we do? And I said, you'll call me Monday morning. I'm going to walk you through it, and I'll see what I can do to help you. We're willing to help anyone that calls us. It, it, don't, don't think this is just about insurance or just about, you know, we were just talking about some things here off the, off on the break, and they're an issue with Chris and I, and we're on the same page with them. And if you need help, call one of us. You know, you go to Chris's uh, Facebook page. His number is there. I mean, it, my number's all over. Call us. We'll help anybody that wants help. And, and I'm not making you promises. I'm not telling you that we're going to send you to Sierra Tucson on a private jet. I'm telling you we're going to get you some help. 
So, Chris, right before the break, we were talking about what goes on in, in, a, in a partial hospitalization program. And so how long does a person stay in that kind of program, in a PHP program? So traditionally, you'll look at about four to six weeks. And again, that is case dependent. Somebody may not need a full four to six weeks. Somebody may be fairly well adjusted and can get away with two weeks. Some people just skip it all together because it's something that some people still just skip. And sometimes people don't even recommend a full continuum of care, which is still mind blowing and still pretty shocking. Well, every time we've done this show, I don't think there has been a show where I have not said 28 days is not the answer. Uh, you and I talked before the show started. When I came to recovery, it was a whole different world. I came to recovery in 1998. It was sit down and shut up and do what we say. And my, my drug of choice was alcohol. And that worked for me. You know, at the first meeting I went to, a guy said to me, don't drink and come back tomorrow. Well, that's all I've done right for the last almost 20 years. It'll be 20 years in September. But that doesn't work today with kids that are 22 and 23-year-old and 18-year-old and 30-year-old opiate addicts. That just doesn't work. And I talk about it all the time. You need more than 28 days. And, and people, families don't want to hear that. Families don't want to hear that their kid, that they think they're unique. You know, the, the stigma of addiction, you know, is which is we talk about all the time. We got to break that stigma. You're not unique. You're, you know, everybody with opiate addiction is the same. And, and that's where our crisis is today, the opiates. So, okay, somebody stays with you four weeks, five weeks, three weeks. Now what happens to them, Chris? Where do they go after that? Well, the hope is that they'll continue on with intensive outpatient, which is that three hours, three days a week that we talked about. Uh, some people will need to move into some supportive sober living like we talked about earlier. Uh, some people have the means and ability to obtain their own apartments. Some people have the means and ability to go back home with their family. Some people have uh, everything is case dependent. So while similar mental things are going on with most everybody, each case is socioeconomically different in those regards a absolutely there are people that can't afford to keep their families or their loved one in in a facility you know in my case my daughter was up in maine eight months by the grace of god we were able to do that not everyone can do that but everyone still needs to help they have they need to have a guide they can't walk through this this is not an i program it's a we program so now people are going to an intensive outpatient program do they now have start their lives over again chris like do they have jobs do they go back to their wife and kids i mean what happens then so the last week of our what we call the chapters program is our <clears throat> is our partial and we call it the chapters program. there's chapter one which is the partial hospitalization section and then chapter two is intensive outpatient so for the last week of chapter one we allow our people to start looking for jobs and go to job fairs get interviews get things set up so that when they go to recovery housing or wherever they're headed next they'll have opportunities already in place, interviews set up and things ready for them to dive back into life that they are hopefully then prepared for. All right, now, life skills. Yes. How many people do you see come through your program that don't know how to write a check, that don't know how to pay a bill? They don't know how to look for a job. Look for, look for a job? I, I mean, there's a whole group of kids right now, that 25-year-old group of kids from 18 to 30 or whatever, they don't even know how to look for jobs. I mean, I read articles every day, like we all do on Facebook. Those kids are quitting the jobs they have to go be bohemians of some sort. I mean, do, do you offer anything like that, Chris? Do you help people with life skills? or? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know some people with five years sober that don't know how to write checks. Uh, 
so so you actually in in the program you have you'll actually take people and sit them down and say this is a checkbook yes this is a, a utility bill this is a job application do you do that kind of stuff? Yeah, we actually, we partner with local banks that come in and do credit seminars. They come in and discuss different ways to rebuild credit, different ways to really just from the baseline up of finance and learning how to be adults. Uh, we also, you know, I didn't even know how to do laundry when I went to my first rehab. I really didn't. I had no idea. So somebody had to teach me how to do that. And there's support staff available to teach people even on that level of just learning how to do laundry or just learning how to reach out to a place to apply for a job just learning any of the really basic life skills that a lot of people take for granted but a lot of people have never really been taught and we see some kids just never had the family support you know some people just didn't have a family structure because now this epidemic is now crossing generations we see parents as well as as children that have the same addiction. Do you ever see that, Chris? We have several times in the last couple of years seen a, a mother and a son or a mother and a daughter or a father and a son and a father and a daughter both reach out at the same time for treatment. So yeah, it is uh, fairly common. Yeah, I mean that that's so kids kids today aren't 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 receiving the structure to develop life skills. You know, Keep in mind, I'm 30 years older than you. I mean, I'm, I grew up in a, in a real strict environment. I mean, you, from day one, you were supposed to learn certain things. Now, the other side of that coin is it was an Irish Catholic environment, so drinking was perfectly normal. In fact, it was encouraged by my mother, not my father, but God rest their souls. All right, so now we've, we, we've, done, this, we've done this outpatient. That, that now, now what is the next step, Chris? So after intensive outpatient, it's recommended that you stick around to a general outpatient, which would be some individual sessions once weekly or a group therapy once weekly, something like that, just to stay in touch with somebody who can help you along the path. While you're working your program of recovery, having a little bit of therapy certainly never hurt anybody. All right, now, now that ends. All right, so somebody's gone through your whole continuum of care and... Now they're back out in in the world and they're going to work every day. And now they relapse. Now, I walked into recovery off the street and have never had another drink since. That's great. That doesn't make me a hero. That makes me an anomaly. What happens? I know I've heard you tell your story. I know you've you told me that not me. You've told your story. You said you were in jail eight months, nine months. You were clean, but you weren't sober you had not recovered you just simply white knuckles through eight or nine months and you walked out the door didn't you and you started to use the minute you walked out the door what's what is relapse chris it was probably a couple hours after i walked out the door each time and in my defense <laughs> all right i thought it was the minute I'm about, you walked I'm about out. two hours of sobriety in me <laughs> of my own will and volition um but relapse is pretty common. It is pretty common, unfortunately. And even after all of that time, we have follow-ups and we have people that are there and available to help really just with you forever. Once you jump into the Blueprints family, you don't leave. I mean, that's just our, our motto. Yeah, so you have a relapse program, a relapse track. Let's, if, if I go through your program and I relapse, can I call you and say I relapsed? Absolutely. Right. There's, there's no shame in relapsing. You're not going to say, oh, no, Johnny, you're a bad kid. Don't come around here. 
What happens when a person relapses, Chris? So if a person relapses, the great hope is that they'll call in and let us know, and, and then we can make the appropriate referral to the level of care that is deemed by a counselor uh, who gets to assess them. So I don't ever pretend to know what your level of care is. I don't ever pretend to say that I'm the expert that is going to tell you exactly what you need at that moment. But we definitely will make sure you get into the appropriate level of care so that you can get off of the train of relapse and back into the train of recovery. And, you know, that happens all the time, what you just said, Chris. I have parents, loved ones, whatever, call me and say, well, how long are they going to be in detox? I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm merely a conduit to get you from where you're at to a treatment program that's appropriate for you. I can't tell you how long you're going to be in detox. I can't tell you what drugs they're going to use to, to be off, on, you know, to detox with. Well, do they give you drugs to detox? Well, what happens with my psychotropic drugs? Do they take them away from me? I don't know. I can't answer those questions. I can just get you to a treatment center and let a clinical and a medical team take over from there to see what see what you need so now that that brings us to a kid comes to relapse and they start over they they go through the whole thing again chris the whole php the whole or or is there like a jump start here again that's case dependent some people need to start all over at detox some people really may not have taken treatment very seriously the last time they were in sometimes people didn't take it seriously at all sometimes people tried their absolute hardest and still fail and so that, again, is case dependent. It's not something that I can just blanket say this is how it goes because nothing about Blueprints is a blanket traditional treatment center. So. And, and that's the point I'm trying to make because there are people, there are people listening to this show right now that are, that are upset with their loved one because they've been to treatment eight times or nine times or they just got out of treatment and a month later they're, they're sick again already. And that's the point I'm trying to make, that no two people are alike. Because your next-door neighbor's kid went to treatment once and now is the president of GM, that's great. That doesn't happen to everyone. We're going to take a break and then we're going to talk about the future of recovery when we come back. All right, I'm Jack, and we're back. And if there's anybody with questions, 570-883-0098. And now let's talk about, we've talked about treatment, what the different levels of care are, Chris. There's something else out there called medically assisted treatment. And medically assisted treatment means Suboxone, Methadone, Vivitrol. How do you feel about that, Chris? First off, before I answer that question, somebody call in because Jack is really lonely right now. Um, and as far as how I feel about it, I don't know that it matters much how I feel about it. It's a pathway to keep people from dying. And uh, in 2018, that's extremely important. So Right. That, And that's how I feel, too, that my road to recovery and your road to recovery aren't the same. So if you need to, if that's where your road to recovery goes, then take it. If you can save a life with that, do it. That's... I believe in abstinence, but that doesn't mean abstinence is going to work for anybody else. If somebody else can save somebody's life with that program, I, I agree 100% with doing it. Chris, where do you see the future of recovery? I mean, recovery has changed dramatically since 98, and you said, as we sat down, that it's changed dramatically since 2007. So where do you see the future of recovery? 
I mean, I, <clears throat> I hope the future of recovery is everybody latching onto it and crushing away the stigma that it's a moral failing when somebody gets addicted to substances. Uh, that's my real hope. But again, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a fortune teller. You don't see a really cool hat on my head, and I don't have a little snake that I charm out of a, a bowl. So I can't really say anything about the future, but my hope is that we're able to at least educate as many people as possible and break the stigma of surrounding addiction because it's not a moral failing. I'm not a morally reprehensible person because I consume a substance differently than other people consume a substance, and that's what I hope the future is. Right. Addic addiction is not a failure. Addiction is a disease, and you can take a medicine, you know, a prescribed medicine differently than I can. We are seeing a lot of people today, adults, 50, 60 years old, that have a knee replacement, that fall or they're in a car accident. Suddenly, they're opiate addicts because they couldn't tolerate extended use of an opiate. That doesn't mean that there's something wrong with them. It means it's how their body reacted. It's a, it's a reaction to a substance. So th that's how I look at that, that we have to stop with this, oh, no, you're bad. You're a bad kid. No, only the worst of the worst are heroin addicts. No, there's heroin addicts everywhere, in every walk of life, in every job. Everywhere we turn, there's heroin addicts. And, and we have to accept that. And acceptance is the answer for me and 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 for recovery. So, Chris, what do you have coming up in the future? You were telling us before. Tell us about the volleyball tournament next weekend. So this this weekend coming up on Saturday, we have a, a volleyball tournament that we've run for the last five years. And who runs that, Chris? Uh, well, uh, it's a pretty loose conglomeration of people that run it. A New Life Sober Living originally started out running it. Now Blueprints has jumped in as a, a partner with it. Uh, and our whole purpose is to raise as much money as possible for a little kid who lost his mom to an overdose six years ago and on that day we have several hundred people come out we have teams of five play uh, some wild volleyball many of us are out of shape as you can see if you're watching on facebook live you cannot see if you were listening on the radio uh, but we all just have a blast of a day eat a lot of hot dogs and hamburgers and talk about recovery and commune with people in the community and really 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 uh, come together to show the recovery is possible Fabulous. And those, and you said it started out with one little boy, but this year you have more than one, don't you? Yeah, one of, uh, one of my close friends that I grew up with actually graduated with and uh, was the first person to, to show me how to use a needle, actually, who came down to join us in Lancaster to get sober in 2015. He died uh, earlier this year of an overdose, and he left behind two beautiful little daughters, and we've added them to the pile this year uh, to raise money for all right, and, and Chris, if somebody wanted to make a donation or they want to participate, how do they get in touch with you for that? Well, if you have Facebook, you jump on Facebook, uh, the Blueprints for Addiction Recovery page. There is an event called the Nicole Conway Memorial Volleyball Tournament. You can donate directly on there, or you can call 717-361-1660 and make a donation uh, over the phone if necessary. You can drop a check off at our office, uh, all sorts of ways. But really, getting involved is a beautiful thing. It's a great day of recovery. and Fabulous. Now, I always like to, to kind of wind up with this question, Chris. What is your life like today? Is it, like, is it anything at all like what you imagined when you were sitting in those cells? Did you ever think you'd be in this spot today? No. No, absolutely not. Uh, when I was in jail, all I really wanted was to step outside 
you know, maybe throw a throw a frisbee and play some frisbee golf or, or just something, just not disappoint my parents, just anything like that. And uh, my life today is, is vastly, vastly greater than anything I even could have dreamed of on my best day sitting in jail or my best day sitting in treatment. Uh, there's there's really no way that anything but providence could have come in and and done this. So you do have a life beyond your wildest dreams today? I think that that uh, cliche definitely applies to my life, yes. All right, and do <laughs> you have any other events coming up in the future? You're you're constantly doing this, right, Chris? This show isn't the first time that you've ever done something like this. You're constantly doing stuff. What else is going on? So earlier this year, we actually launched out on an 18-city town hall tour across Pennsylvania. And it kicked off here in Wilkesbury in January at King's College. And our whole purpose of that, it was called Breaking the Cycle, uh, Communities Against Addiction. And our purpose was to go around to each city in the state and educate families about what's going on and really try and break the cycle, the vicious cycle that people are in. And go from treatment, get out, relapse, go back to treatment, get out, relapse. And we're really trying to see if we couldn't, as communities, come together and have a discussion about what we can do as individuals to fix this problem. And... Uh, we've stopped in 17 total cities so far, and we're about to wrap up in Lancaster, you know, where I'm based uh, on August 18th. So we've gotten, I don't even remember all the cities. We were in Lebanon and Erie and Pittsburgh and Altoona and Johnstown and Wilkesbury and Scranton and, uh, you know, right outside of Philadelphia a couple times and Westchester. And I, I can't even remember all the places, but it's been amazing to see regionally how people are coming together to fight the opioid crisis. So you, you've been in 17 cities so far, and you're going to the 18th is Lancaster. The point is addiction is everywhere. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not just Kensington section of Philadelphia. It's in Princeton, New Jersey. It's in Greenwich, Connecticut. It's in every city and every walk of life. It, it, there, is no, there is no socioeconomic boundaries to the addiction crisis we're in, is there, Chris? Not at all. I mean, even just on our town hall tour, we have had a, a minimum of three speakers and up to five speakers at each event. And one of them is a, a former WWE wrestler who went by the name of X-Pac, uh, Sean Waltman, who has been to the, the heights of his career. You know, he's made millions and millions of dollars and flown all over the world performing in front of hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and he, he was affected by addiction. And he flew from Los Angeles to Pittsburgh to come talk with us about this. And uh, it really doesn't discriminate in any way, shape, or form. You know, two of the guests we've had on this show previously talked about their opiate addiction. Randy Grimes, who played for Tampa Bay Buccaneers, told us that he would he would eat 50 or 55 uh, uh, oxys a day. He played games in blackouts. Well, that's amazing to me. But there's a guy playing in the NFL. The, the, Lori Besden, who was the guest, our first guest on this season, is, is the executive director of Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers. And she was doing the same thing. She spent a year in jail. She was eating handfuls of painkillers a day. I, I don't want people that are listening to this show just to think that it happens only in the projects, you know, only, only for people that don't have jobs. There are people that are in some pretty high-class jobs right now that are either in recovery or some of them are still are still actively using. I mean, I met a kid one day, he was a welder on a nuclear power plant, and he was he was actively using opiates. He died three days later. But you see people everywhere, don't you, Chris? Absolutely. It's just a, it's an all-encompassing thing. It doesn't discriminate based on your number of dollars or your color, your race, anything like that. But this This brings us to the end of this show. 
And Chris, you came up here today without hesitation, and that's what recovery is about. Recovery is about reaching out your hand and, and helping others. And we have to continue to do that, not just you and I, but anybody that's in recovery, we need you to reach out your hand, and we need you to say, we'll help. What are your last thoughts as we close this out, Chris? My last thoughts are thank you for letting me drive several hours to Wilkes-Barre to join you today. And uh, just remember, you know, addiction isn't a crime and addiction isn't a moral failing. It's something that we can recover from. So if you are struggling or anybody around you is struggling, then just reach out. I mean, this show right here is a pretty fantastic way to spread that message. And again, thank you. All right, tell tell the folks listening your phone number one time, more time, Chris, in case they want to get in touch with you. Sure. I mean, you literally said while we're sitting here talking, somebody texted you looking for help. So what's your phone number? And one number to Blueprints is 717-361-1660. Again, 717-361-1660. And you can always Facebook stalk me, and that's how a lot of people seem to reach out now in 2018. All right. Thank you, Chris. And my phone number is 570-881-5825. Give me a call if you want help. Thank you so much for being with us today.